This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Well, do I have a special treat for you today, an interview with widely esteemed trial and appellate counsel, Mona Duckett. Mona is a partner at Dawson, Duckett, Garcia, and Johnson in Edmonton. She's an unbelievable lawyer and legal educator. She's been counsel on countless high-profile, fascinating cases. Recently, she made international headlines for her searing cross-examination of the CBSA officers in the Meng extradition hearing in British Columbia. Her long and storied career, I know, will be an inspiration to you as we dive right in on all things Mona. Please enjoy. Imond is excited to announce that we will be sponsoring the Federation of Law Society's National Criminal Law Program this summer. After a two-year hiatus, the NCLP will be back on in person in Victoria from July 4th to the 8th. This year's program focuses on criminal procedure as well as ethics and the charter. In addition to providing over 20 hours of CPD, the NCLP provides incredible networking opportunities, including receptions and a mentoring breakfast sponsored by Iman. To register, visit flsc.ca slash national-criminal-law-program. Be sure to drop by Iman's booth at the conference for a chance to win a special prize. You might also catch us recording a special on-location episode of The Lawyer's Lounge with surprise guests. Register to be part of the fun at flsc.ca slash National Criminal Law Program. We look forward to seeing you there. Mona Duckett, thank you for joining me in the lounge today. We're so excited to have you. So grateful that you said uh, yes to this. And uh, I think where I want to start is with, um, with baby Mona. What, what was baby <laughs> Mona like? Did she always want to be a criminal lawyer? Did, was she always destined for the law? Tell me, tell me about her. So I am thrilled to be here, Danielle, and I am on Zoom looking at your beautiful office uh, in downtown Toronto, I assume. How I wish I could be there in person to share a drink with you in the lounge. But here I am in cold Edmonton, where it hasn't snowed for 24 hours. (laughs) And I'm happy to tell you about how I came to the law, because it's actually kind of funny. Uh, In grade two, we did a play, and I got to be the criminal defense lawyer. And I don't know if it was the adrenaline rush of addressing the jury or the idea of acting for the underdog, but I knew from that moment that was what I wanted to do. And that's the direction the rest of my education went because I just wanted to be called to the bar so I could be a criminal defense lawyer. Wow. And (laughs) was this surprising to your, your family? How did your parents react? I come from a family of teachers, so it just came out of the blue. We didn't know any lawyers. I don't have any relatives or friends who were lawyers. Uh, You know, I've saved a cartoon. Shortly after I got called to the bar, there was a cartoon, and I forget what what the author is or the, the 
you know, name of the cartoon, but the person saying to another, my mom is so disappointed. I still tell her I'm a truck driver, but in fact, the person's a lawyer. So, you know, my mom is, is wondering in advance, am I going to see your name in the paper? Like I need to give her a heads up because it's going to be something ugly. I think they're very proud of me as things sure. have turned out, but it was entirely novel to my family. Well, you know, I, I've often thought that there is, um, there are, there are, there's like a link with the helping professions, you know, teachers and doctors and nurses. I think we fall in that category, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what draws me to some of my cases. They are just inordinately vulnerable people. Mm. And you've got to have a soft spot for those people. Was it always going to be defense, Mona? Yes. Yeah, always. I have never considered seeking a job with the prosecution. And even the work that that I do that's non-criminal, it's not prosecutory work. It's either independent work like uh, uh, counsel presenting a fatality inquiry or giving advice to witnesses. Now I give advice to Crown witnesses. I give advice to independent witnesses, but it's never prosecuting. Yeah. Yeah. You're not a fire starter. You're a firefighter. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) nicely said and I you know I I want to we talk about your beginning and and um and here you are you know at the height of your power um uh with just an illustrious career and and more to come but I think you know particularly during the pandemic so many of our colleagues are kind of starved for for tips or stories about resilience um, and you know, there's so much information out there about burnout and and people leaving the profession. And you know, what can you what can you tell our listeners about your your road and how you've managed to to uh, stay so so active um, and so engaged and so passionate through these years. Uh, I have been absolutely blessed with my career. I've had some terrible bumps, but you know, you've gotten over them. Like we won't go to my articling story. That's another, another oh, issue. We may, but, we may. <laughs> <laughs> but I love what I do. There has not been a day in my working career that I have said to myself, Oh God, I don't want to go into the office. There's not been a single day. You know, I, I just love what I do. And you know, criminal defense lawyers aren't in it for the money, right? Yeah. Maybe some are in it for the glory, but um, it is hard, hard work. You're always, uh, on, well, you're not always on the losing end, but the system is designed for you to lose. And, and that's right, yeah. because we don't want to be charging uh, not provably guilty people. Um, and it's emotionally taxing, not just because of that constant judges don't respect you, the public doesn't respect you, sometimes the crowns don't respect you, the clients are in such vulnerable circumstances, you can do so little to help them sometimes, it's risk mitigation, but all of that means that you need to be happy in what you're doing for whatever reason. And so I'm happy doing this work because uh, I see the good in what I'm doing, even though sometimes not even the client sees the good in what I'm doing. But also, I've been able to do other things in law that have kept me uh, mentally happy and healthy. 
because uh, if you're just doing file work, it's going to drag you down. So teaching has become important to me. Volunteerism has becoming important to me. Getting to know people outside of my bar has been a wonderful experience for me. It's opened other doors. It's honed new skills that I didn't think I had. So that is how I've survived to 38 years at the bar, I guess. Wow. 38 years, Mona. Congratulations. It's really something, you know, I'm at 15 and I'm, I gotta tell you, I'm tired. (laughs) I'm tired too. So I'm being more selective in my cases these days. It's finally nice to be at the point where I can say no, but I got someone who can help you with that. Yeah. Well, I, there's one case that you have spoken about um, publicly and I I really want to commend um, this book to our listeners. Um, the book is called Tougher Cases, and uh, it's, it's a great Canadian uh, criminal uh, law book. And uh, each chapter is written by a prominent uh, defense lawyer. Uh, and your chapter deals with uh, the case uh, R uh, versus uh, NRR, which is a, a youth case. Um, and it's just a mind-blowing story. Uh, and so our listeners can can look up um, the, the cases, the various rulings on Canley, or they can listen to the audiobook as I did of, of tougher cases and, and get your, your chapter, which is extremely compelling. But um, what a case, Mona. <laughs> like, I, I could not believe it. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Sure. And, you know, I'd entirely forgotten that I'd written about that, Danielle, until you reminded me. So I pulled out my version and reread it in preparation. But, you know, the case, like some cases, I'm sure in your career even, will stick with you forever, uh, just given their nature. And this one was so compelling to me because it was a confluence of a very vulnerable client. So this is a 14-year-old kid who ran away from Bosco Homes, and that was very high profile because within hours of his running away with a a buddy, uh, two people were killed nearby. And so the speed with which he was charged and the way in which he was treated by the RCMP, who were tunnel vision on a path to convict these two kids, was astounding. Added to that, It was the law around Mr. Biggs before the Supreme Court's decision in Hart. And anybody who's done a Mr. Big before that decision uh, knows what a challenge it is to try and kick out that evidence. Uh, That uh, uh, was just, as I said, the confluence of factors that made it an inordinately compelling case. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing it despite the jeopardy that this young kid was facing all the time. And, and the, the fun, I guess, was related to the intellectual challenge of, of trying to seek the exclusion of that, that statement. Is that fair, Mona? The intellectual challenge around the development of the law on Mr. Biggs. Yeah. Uh, but also the advocacy challenge in going after these police who were not going to admit the tunnel vision, who were not going to admit the unreliability of what they were getting from this. So just in, in terms of uh, just a quick nugget so that your, yeah. your listeners understand. So these two kids uh, run away from Bosco homes and within um, 
about half an hour of them being caught in a stolen truck, it's discovered that the owner of the truck is dead at his acreage nearby with another person. So these two homicides were investigated and the young kids charged. And a, a big part of the statement or the, the case rather initially was my client's statement to the police where he had been effectively abandoned by his legal aid staff lawyer who'd come and given him some advice. And then he gives this co uh, confession that is clearly uh, a coerced confession and ultimately gets kicked out at the first trial. And that's the end of the case. So they they stay it after the statement is excluded and they do a Mr. Big on each of these kids uh, living independently in Edmonton and Calgary, my guys in Edmonton. And it's an, a Mr. Big that is crafted to appeal to any 16 year old who has been brought up in the children's welfare system, who has no supportive family or home, no education, no driver's license, no job, no skills, no resume, no nothing. Yeah. These cops were taking him to hockey games and skiing and buying him booze and giving him a condo where he could just drink and entertain his guests. All the while, he's being screwed literally by a child welfare worker. Yeah an adult woman and the police know about the relationship and they let it go on despite the fact that it's illegal and they're pumping him for information. Anyway, long story short, this kid starts talking to Mr. Big and the stories he comes up with in the scenarios are like they're out of fiction, clearly. Yeah. Nobody stops and says, hey, let's check the value of what we're getting here. Why are we doing this? All the while they're spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars on these scenarios. They are causing damage to this kid in terms of his future psyche. They are allowing him to be uh, abused by this 30 plus year old woman and they're getting garbage by way of evidence. So yeah. showing the garbage at the trial was a lot of fun despite you know everything that had happened. So in that sense, it was the advocate's dream with lying witnesses and witnesses to be trapped into admissions against their interests, et cetera. Because yeah. all, all they needed to do was, was stop and check the file to, yeah. to know immediately that what they were getting was, was as you say, garbage. The forensics were, um, were clear that anyone who had committed this crime would have been covered in blood um, and the, the mechanism of death was clear and, um, and he was just making it up this poor kid. Absolutely. And there was a psych report or a psychologist report from the first trial yet that talked about his, uh, pleasing nature and his mm -hmm. desire to say anything. And that's one of the reasons the first statement was kicked out because he would just say anything to anybody to belong. But, you Project. know, and the, the kid, the kid was so vulnerable um, you know, he'd never had, you know, consistent housing or, or meals. And so you offer a kid like that, that sort of support. And he, you know, he's likely to say anything. Exactly. Do you think, he, do you think the public understand, understands the concept of false confessions? Uh, no, you know, the general, uh, Jane on the street probably doesn't, have a reason to believe unless they've been in the system and had some experience that people will say things that are not true for multiple reasons and not just because it's uh, compliant, uh, cooperative, 
um, or because of, there's some immediate benefit to the accused person. So that's that's another interesting and unique challenge in our job, trying to educate our lay triers the fact about things that we could only see and believe if we've been in this profession for as long as we have been. And, you know, one, one thing that I found very interesting um, about this case was the, the press release that the RCMP issued after you successfully defended this young man um, for the second time. Uh, and I, I wonder what your, your re- reaction was uh, to that press release when they said basically that they weren't going to try to find the real culprits of the, this double murder and that they were satisfied that they had done a good investigation. So your heart's got to break for the families of the two dead people who have been watching this process and looking for justice. But also, isn't it a shocking uh, commentary on our national police force, or at least some members of our national police force, who aren't prepared to stand back and question their own judgment after the fact with clear, clear commentary in judges' reasons as to how uh, this case could never have constituted proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They just were not prepared to do that. Sad. One, one thing that I know um, some members of our bar find really um, frustrating is, um, you know, the limits of the role and the limits of, of our advocacy in any, in any case. And I think that's kind of struck me with this case is here you did this incredible job in, in saving this kid's life, but you've also exposed a major systemic problem. Um, and to have the, the institution kind of shrug its shoulders has got to be disheartening and, and frustrating. I wonder whether that's been something that, that you've reflected on through your career that's inspired some of your, your inquest work, your inquiry work, or, or is that something you think about? I do think about it. And that's a really good question, Daniel, because despite the fact that we work in a system where we are required to, you know, keep our trap shut about everything that's confidential. uh, And I don't try my cases in the media and many lawyers smartly don't, but sometimes a case is going to raise an issue that you realize has uh, public interest importance and there needs to be some education around it. Uh, This case is one of the first in which I actually spoke to Janice Johnson, the local CBC reporter, and she reminds me of it time and again. And the second case that I ever spoke to her about was Naslin, which you may or may not get to. But I also agreed to do an interview with our local CBC AM uh, news station. I had never done that before about a case. But again, it's because of the public interest in people understanding what had happened here. And lawyers, I think, defense lawyers particularly, are are often looking for ways to get involved with improving the system because in our advocacy work, we are totally limited. That's not our purpose. And I know that, you know, whether it's serving on a legislative committee for the the Criminal Lawyers Association uh, or, you know, uh, engaging in conferences where you are interacting in a multidisciplinary way, there are ways in which we can find those outlets and do those things. And that's a crucial part, I think, of what a defense lawyer needs to do to stay healthy because we can make the system better uh, Mm. based on the experiences we've had. 
Do you have, um, have you reflected on, do you have any, any um, ideas or reflections or comments about the limited role of, of Crown Council and, and their interactions with, with the media? Sometimes um, in cases like, like th this one or others, I think, God, you know, I just wish they could grab the mic and, <laughs> and say something. Uh, but certainly in Ontario, um, the Crown will rarely if ever comment after uh, a case is completed. And I think that's changed a little bit over time. Uh, I know that there was a time when I practiced in Edmonton and nobody was able to say anything from the Crown's office. It was forbidden. And then we transitioned to there being a spokesperson for the Crown. Uh, but again, that person isn't available short term uh, or quickly and doesn't have the background about the case. And it was sort of an institutional response. I'm now, I don't know what the policy is now in Edmonton, but I am seeing prosecutors speaking sometimes on the courthouse steps. Uh, I haven't yet seen anything that I have found to be disconcerting. Mind you, I don't watch it all. But again, they've got to be very careful uh, about what they're saying at that point, because people don't always understand the role of the prosecutor. It, they are not the victim's lawyer, of course, and um, care has to be taken, obviously, in conveying uh, the importance of the role. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 do, I do agree with you that there is an obligation. We have an obligation where um, it doesn't there's no conflict with our, our clients' interests to educate the public responsibly about issues of, of public interest. And you mentioned Naslin. Um, why don't you tell our listeners about that case and what is it that caused you to uh, address the media, address the public uh, in relation to that case? So Ms. Nasland uh, was uh, a woman who for 27 years lived on a farm with a husband who was abusive to her. I actually had the, um, it's hard to call it a pleasure, but I sat down and listened to my client, uh, Helen Nasland, being interviewed by a Globe and Mail reporter at the Edmonton Institution for Women for four hours just the other day this week. So I got to hear the details of the torture of living with this man who exercised clear coercive control over her and their three boys for 27 years. Uh, Ms. Nasland was charged with first degree murder ultimately after she shot her sleeping husband in the back of the head and uh, with the assistance of family members disposed of her body and hid that fact for a number of years. So her charge of first degree murder uh, on which I did not represent her, I had no involvement, ultimately ended up with a guilty plea to manslaughter on condition that she agreed to an 18 year sentence. Mm. That happened in Edmonton and I knew nothing of the case until I read about it in the press. Uh, but others who read in the press didn't stay silent like I did at the time. Uh, people like uh, Elizabeth Sheehy and Kim Pate, a senator, were outraged at the sentence because there is not a single case in Canadian jurisprudence of a battered woman uh, killing her batterer and receiving anything close to 18 years. And so as a result of the public response to the sentence, uh, I ultimately got approached beyond the appeal period to try and do something to help this woman. 
And uh, I did. And eventually the Alberta Court of Appeal in a wonderful judgment written by a strong woman judge who has a ton of courage, yeah. uh, cut her sentence in half. So she's now serving nine years. But what, what appealed um, to me about the case in terms of trying to right a wrong was not just the egregious sentence, but it was the Crown's extortion. And I don't think that's too strong a word of that 18 year sentence uh, as their only agreement to dropping the first degree murder and running a manslaughter. And I don't care how strong the case is on first. If you are content with a manslaughter as the proper resolution, then why? Where is the public interest in extorting a sentence that is more harsh than the jurisprudence supports. And you know, some, uh, some of your listeners may have seen this in other contexts where the Crown is saying, I will only exercise my discretion to withdraw a charge if you agree to X by way of a sentence or a range of sentence. Um, and that's always driven me crazy because there's so little we can do about it. Mm-hmm. I only hope that Naslin's uh, example and the comments that Justice Greco made about the bargaining position will cause crowns to think twice about the justifiability of the sentence that they are seeking agreement to when they exercise their discretion to drop or reduce a charge. Well, it's, it's a complicated um, ethical issue and um, and what, what's defense counsel to do in, in these scenarios? That's just it. You know, I've been in that position. So I have acted for, I can remember at least five battered women. And uh, always you are saying to them, manslaughter is on the table. Uh, and manslaughter versus a life sentence and maybe life 25 is a huge gamble. And there's so many reasons that the woman particularly, but many others, I just doesn't just apply to battered women, but so many reasons that the accused person would say, I'm not prepared to take a gamble. Uh, In two of those battered women cases, the Crown agreed actually, despite there being a case technically of murder, they agreed to indict on manslaughter or to, to consent to a committal for trial on manslaughter, which is incredibly fair because Um, the gamble then is different, right? The risk of a mandatory life is no longer there. It's hard to gather the psychological evidence on a battered women's syndrome. We've all read Lavallee and the cases that Mm -hmm. followed and we all know how hard it is to convince a lay person that A, this happened for 27 years and B, this is the state of mind at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So (laughs) the ethics of it uh, are challenging and... uh, you know, I, I only hope that uh, crowns are reassessing not just what is the joint offer that they're making, but why not let them run a manslaughter here? Because the, the pressure on the defense, who's going to say, I cannot recommend this? It's pretty tough. Yeah, it's very tough. And I think it, when you put it that way, it's a very compelling submission. If you're prepared to settle for a manslaughter and a plea, why why are you not prepared to settle for it uh, in in a trial? I mean, it's hard to kind of come up with a, a good ethical reason in the public interest. Um, I, I 
I, my bet is that those prosecutors who agree, who agreed to indict on manslaughter just knew where the trial would end up with you on the other side, Mona. I think that probably had something to do with it. It's about fairness, Danielle, <laughs> not about me. Um, do you have, you know, sometimes I think there ought to be um, a greater role for the, for the judge uh, on a plea inquiry in, in cases that are very serious um, to inquire after some of these issues and incentives. Um, here in Ontario, there's a paralegal named Maria Shepard uh, who's an exoneree, and uh, she often speaks about the pressure that was exerted on her when she um, uh, pled guilty to a, a manslaughter charge uh, on the basis of, of evidence that was later debunked by Charles Smith. And at the time that she agreed, she was pregnant um, and had three other children that she was caring for. And you know, obviously those collateral, you know, it quote unquote collateral facts uh, impacted her, her decision um, in, in such a significant way. And, and I sometimes wonder whether there's a greater role for a sentencing judge to kind of dig in on, on some of the details of these plea bargains. Yeah, there's, so there's such huge variety in whether judges do an inquiry directly of the accused person and how thorough it is. Mm -hmm. So no matter how thorough the inquiry was here, uh, I think the plea would have been maintained in the sense that uh, this woman is not going to say, OK, I changed my mind. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm going to run my trial. Maybe what it takes is courage for the judge to, uh, and I don't suggest that the trial judge here or the sentencing judge was not courageous. Uh, I, have the, I have huge respect for him. Uh, and he is a judge who was known to be one who would abide by joint submissions because he practiced criminal yeah. work and knew what goes into these things. Mm -hmm. but, but that aside, uh, I take from Nasland, uh, any submissions that are being put that are joint have to be justifiable jurisprudentially. Yeah. This one was not. Mm -hmm. Add to that the unequal bargaining positions that's inherent with a battered woman. That's another factor. So maybe it takes the courage of a judge to say, uh, I'm going to reject this joint, but I'm prepared to keep this and impose a just sentence. And you can make submissions about what a just sentence is and do something different than the bargained price. Mona, are you ready to tell us your articling story? <laughs> I'm happy to tell you my articling story. And so what I learned from my articling story, maybe that, that has carried me into my practice in a good way is the importance of being an absolutely 100% ethical lawyer. Hmm. So as I told you, I didn't know any lawyers uh, when I decided I wanted to be one. And during the third year of law school, I took a part-time job working for a junior criminal lawyer who was scrambling to make a practice, which was great. I couldn't find an articling job. I interviewed at some of the big firms in Edmonton, and they wanted nothing to do with a woman who wanted to do criminal law because 
probably I was a woman and there's no money in criminal law. So and I ended up articling for this fellow who, for whom I'd been working. He didn't have enough years at the bar to be able to take a student at the time. So he assigned my article to another guy who we, he was sharing space with uh, for, for part of the time. And then my article was split between the two. Well, it turns out the other guy had been disbarred previously by the Law Society. Uh, and the other guy ended up long story short, being disbarred a second time for stealing trust money. So he was disbarred twice. The guy for whom I had been working and who was, uh, in fact, de facto my, my boss, uh, proceeded with the articling. I got called to the bar, went on my honeymoon the month after I was called to the bar, came back from my honeymoon to discover that the other student who had been seconded to the office in my absence left because the RCMP showed up with a search warrant and seized a bunch of files. Well, turns out this principal was charged by the Law Society with fabricating a federal court order, including putting the seal on it, and then blaming his assistant for it, all because he couldn't lie to these clients to tell them that he had not, in fact, gone to federal court and gotten this order. It was just a horrendous experience. And it taught me, well, lots of things it taught me, but so I bailed at that point because sure. I wasn't going to stick around. And despite my principal saying, oh, go talk to my lawyer. He'll give you some advice. Yeah. The lawyer said, <laughs> client confidentiality. I can't do anything. I ended up just quitting the job. One month call to the bar. I sent letters to every criminal lawyer who was practicing in Edmonton saying, please, can I have a job? <laughs> And sure enough, a very uh, experienced senior lawyer, Peter Royal, who was then probably, I he's 10 years my senior, so he didn't have yes. a ton of work, but he was a good lawyer. He was uh, teaching at the law school. It just happened that he could take me and I spent 24 years working with Peter and doing magnificent cases. But uh, I have been very, very cautious since that time, always to be absolutely 100% ethical and when in doubt the tummy test doesn't pass then I'm I'm gonna make the call that you know airs on the side of caution rather than not so would you describe yourself as a conservative lawyer hmm oh that's a loaded word <laughs> <laughs> I'm a conservative person yeah thus I'm probably a not not politically no, no, I thank you. I didn't thank think you. that, Mona. Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm old school, so you know some of the things you thought maybe we could talk about is technology, or I'm totally old school. I'm only on Instagram to to creep my kids. Uh, I don't use Twitter, etc. So, yeah, that's me. But you must have learned about metadata. I mean, like you can't do a criminal case now without having yeah. some facility in, in technology. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You have to stay uh, on top of what yeah. your cases are bringing to you. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I don't I, have the skill set that you do though, Dan Danielle. So I'm going to people, young people in my office for help sure. with those sorts of things. It's, it's so important to have a, a phone, a friend. Um, and so it sounds like you've, you have, always had uh, lawyers around you that you could lean on. And phone a friend is the last thing I say to my advocacy students I teach at the law school and mm -hmm. the last class I always say to them, any problem, ethical, file, uh, whatever, you can phone me because 
some of these young lawyers have nobody to phone. Sorry, and there was another part to your question that I just got totally distracted by. No, no, um, I, I do. I think you've touched on what what we in Ontario are calling, you know, the mentorship crisis. And, um, you know, the CLA tries to fill the gap. It sounds like you you try to fill the gap with your students. And um, uh, it certainly is is uh, an issue that 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 people struggle with. And I think um, I know many of of our listeners, uh, many students often approach me trying to troubleshoot problems related to sexism in the profession. And, um, and I always find those calls very frustrating because I have this kind of <laughs> Pollyanna hope that it's going to just get better every year. And um, one day I'll, I won't get those calls. And just, um, I wonder, um, from your perspective, at 38 years, is, what, what are your thoughts on that, that stuff, that whole can of worms? And that whole can of worms, you mentioned sexism in the profession, and that mm -hmm. um, has reminded me of the other part of your question that I don't think I answered fully, and it's about who you surround yourself with. Mm. Uh, because, uh, you know, as long as there is sexism or racism in the world, there will be sexism and racism in the profession. There's just no doubt about it. We don't, we can't scream for that sort of thing when people are called to the bar. So it's always really important who you surround yourself uh, with and the colleagues who you are with are going to be your support when um, push comes to shove and you are in a difficult ethical or personal position because they're going to be there for you. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I have never applied to the bench. I want to be able to choose my colleagues aside from loving what I do, but mm. I, I want to choose my colleagues. I want to control my calendar. Um, I have been cautious about being surrounded by people who have the same ideas about practice that I do. We're a firm of about a dozen, half of whom are women. And that's kind of rare in criminal laws, you know, and I yeah. know you are in a wonderful environment with Scott and Marie, both of whom I know well. Uh, I hear stories of young women having to walk out of employment relationships with male lawyers. And it doesn't surprise me because when I think about who those male lawyers are and the attitudes they might have consciously or subconsciously, it's no surprise to me that she couldn't survive there because yeah. the environment was not uh, welcoming for whatever reason. And sometimes that's not very um, apparent, mm. either going in or to the man. Uh, much of what we see by way of sexism these days is very uh, discreet uh, because, of course, we all know the risks of it. But unless you're in an environment that is going to accommodate your ideals, your goals, your needs, and women have unique needs in life and practice that men don't have to deal with, Mm -hmm. um, then you're not going to survive. You're not going to be happy. You're not going to be able to do the things you want to do, like have children and volunteer and uh, everything that entails. Yeah. So uh, to kind of round out our conversation, uh, Mona, would you, at this stage in your career and with your vantage on the profession and the practice, would you recommend this life to an aspirant 
uh, in law school who has a, a, a passion? Or would you say, you know, maybe you should look into dentistry? I love being a criminal defense lawyer and uh, I do a lot of lecturing and my passion just because it's there, I think seems to come through. So if there is any way that I can inspire either law students or high school students or anybody who's thinking about a profession uh, that involves uh, helping the underdog <laughs> and battling uh, the institutions, uh, this is it, and I'm happy to do it. We need more people who are committed to criminal defense. Given what we've seen happening to the bar during the pandemic, we need women who are going to stick with this practice, who are going to get onto the bench. I mean, the Naslin decision reminded me of the importance yeah. of strong, courageous oh, women yeah. on the bench, because if it wasn't for Sheila Greckel, yeah. That never would have been written. And I'm not going to go there, but some of you, perhaps you will go there, Danielle. We need women who are going to um, withstand practice long enough that they are getting appointed and that they are actually making the kind of changes that we as lawyers can't make. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to trouble you with one more question. Um, you, you know, we hear about the, the stress and strain of practice um, vicarious trauma, your, your caseload is very heavy um, on an emotional level, in terms of time, all of it. What, what do you do to unwind? Are you an aerobics fanatic? What does, what does Mona do uh, to blow off steam? So aside from personal unwinding, let mm. me just put a plug in for doing fun things within the profession because there are fun yeah. things to do, right? So uh, the Edmonton Bar does a Habitat for Humanity build. So for 17 years, I was on that committee raising money and going out yeah. and building houses. Uh, we do a legal play annually to raise money for the local groups. And I've done a number of plays and we're doing a radio play this year because of COVID. But oh, fun cool. things like that, that you are part of your profession and connecting with people outside of criminal defense are just a fabulous way to maintain that mental health. Um, otherwise, at home, I am on my exercise machine at, uh, well, before six o'clock in the morning. Oh, don't say it, Mona, really? I started that <laughs> habit, Danielle, when my first kid came along 28 years ago, and I've been doing it five days a week since because routine is good, right? Um, routine is good. Yeah. It helps us. It helps us to stay well. And uh, I walk my chocolate lab and I travel every time I can. And I've finally gone back to reading books, despite reading being hard because we do it at, at work and I've rediscovered the joy of fiction. So there you go. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And I'll, I'll dust off my Peloton and, and I'll try to get <laughs> back to a routine. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us in the, in the lounge, Mona. It's been such a treat. And I know that um, this podcast is going to be very popular and, and you're going to make a, a great impact on on our listeners, as I know that you do in, in your local bar and, and nationally. So thank you so much for spending time with us. My absolute pleasure. Thanks again for doing this, Danielle. It has been decades since a fresh perspective has been published on the law of criminal evidence. Iman Publishing is proud to soon be releasing its first treatise, Modern Criminal Evidence, authored by Matthew Gourlay, Brock Jones, Jill D. Makepeace, Glenn Crisp, and Justice Renee Pomerantz, with a foreword by Justice David Doherty.
This comprehensive 800-page treatise analyzes evidentiary issues from Crown, defense, and judicial perspectives, featuring up-to-date content and real-world examples on a diverse range of topics, including judicial fact-finding, digital evidence, opinion, circumstantial and character evidence, hearsay, judicial notice, the intersection of proceedings, confessions, and privilege, in addition to practice tips that provide readers with years' worth of trial experience anticipate evidentiary issues, develop practical solutions, and employ compelling advocacy strategies. And I can tell you that I've begged Matt for advanced chapters of this book. They are excellent. I've reviewed them and put them into practice in the trial context already. Pre-order your copy today. Visit iman.ca slash LLP dash MCE and enter promo code Lawyers Lounge MCE at checkout for 10% off your copy of Modern Criminal Evidence. The Lawyers Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Danan Hawes. And marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyers Lounge. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like the Lawyers' Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. 